Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash race. Use the promo code race. Getting into college was once a normal teenage rite of passage. Now it's a global hunger games. You're competing against the kid at the best school in Singapore. Slate and Panoply are here to help. Our new podcast, Getting In, follows a group of seniors through the college application process in real time. Along the way, the students and listeners will get advice from experts with decades of experience. Getting In, a podcast about demystifying college admissions and finding the right fit for every student. Available in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the B-Side for episode 12 of our national conversation about conversations about race, the Baratunde Who episode. I'm Raquel Cepeda here in Panoply's New York studios with my regular co-discussant Tanner Colby. What up? What up? What up? Hello, Raquel. Hi. I missed you. I missed you too. Okay. And due to Barrett TV Day Thurston's new position as digital content boss for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, I'm so looking forward to that. We're bringing in a special guest, but we're going to, let's tease this in. Why don't we talk about intersections? How, <laughs> tell me about an, an interesting intersection in your life. An interesting intersection in my life was that I met my wife and moved in with her and my upstairs neighbor who loved my dog and wanted the dog sit. My dog was a woman named Jill Filipovich, a feminist blogger and writer. And she was very good friends with Bertrand Day Thurston and gave my book to him, which is how we met, which is why there's a podcast. And at uh, Jill's 4th of July roof barbecue, I met her other friend who is here with us in the studio today. So that is an interesting intersection. Wow. There you go. I can never top you, Tanner. As much as I try to topple the man down, I can't seem to do it. Okay, so we're approaching the beginning of Latino History Month. So I guess the intersection for me is that I'm a woman. Yes. And that I am Latina. Yes. And if it wasn't for you and Baratunde, I guess, discovering me on a beach somewhere in the Caribbean. Well, I think you were already Half naked, <laughs> walking on the beach. I would not be here because when was the last time you actually seen a Latina walking down the hall, uh, the halls of uh, Panoply? About yeah. 10 minutes ago. Yeah, but, okay. But so speaking of intersections... That brings me to our special guest this week. I'm so excited that he's here. Almost as excited as Tanner Colby, who's like spazzing out right here, right next to me. Jamil, we want to welcome Jamil Smith, the senior editor at New Republic, who just launched a new podcast called Intersection. Yay! Thank you. Thank you you for having me. I am so honored. I can't even... So welcome to the show. Thank you. So uh, on our last episode, we featured Anna Sale of WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money about her series, her excellent series, on New Orleans 10 years after Katrina. We also talked with Nicole Hannah-Jones about reporting for This American Life on the current state of segregation. So this week, I want to just give a shout out and a real big virtual hug and high five to our listeners who sent in many, many, many voicemails. And uh, here to DJ, a selection of what you had to say is about racist producer, the one and only 
A.C. Valdez. He's so cool. We just have to call him A.C. Uh, not uh, even like Antonio or something. Just A.C. You had to go there. We, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of uh, enthusiastic feedback on our school segregation segment. So I'm, I'm not start surprised. With James from Texas. So I'm a 29 year old in corporate America who went to diverse schools my whole life. And by diverse, I mean, I was one of a handful of blacks who, as you put it in your last podcast, made it over the fence. So when I moved from Brooklyn at a very young age to the suburbs of Houston, Texas, my parents wanted to make sure me and my brothers were exposed to all types of people, not just people who look like us. The byproduct of that, of course, was living in between, you speak so proper, I'm impressed, to why are you trying to act white? So most of my black friends went to the black schools in my district and had very different experiences than me. Trust me, I know how I sound, and I'm shaking my head as I speak. The schools they went to were by no means bad, and most everyone I know went on to go to colleges. Meanwhile, it was either adapt or be an outcast for me. So I found ways to fit in, but I always wondered what it would be like if I had gotten a chance to grow up with more people who look like me. How can someone like me have a legitimate voice in the black community while at the same time be taken seriously and not just the exceptional, articulate black man in white society? Also, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how the integrated school systems across the country eventually affect HBCUs as well as predominantly white universities. Thanks, guys. I enjoy the show and look forward to your response. Keep doing what you do. That was, that just sent chills down my arms. That was a really well-crafted voice memo. Uh, Jamil, what, what so advice Jamil, would you have for this young man? I think, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I've been in his shoes a little bit. Grew up going to a private school from first to eighth grade. Uh, not really being social with kids in my neighborhood. So Where? I didn't really, what neighborhood? Oh, sorry. Uh, suburb of Cleveland, Ohio called Shaker Heights. And so that's where I grew up. Um, but I also, you know, my father lived eight minutes away in the city. So I was between the city and the suburbs all the time. But I, you know, had my sort of entrenched group of friends from school, from my private school, most of whom were white. I didn't really have any friends that were in my neighborhood until I decided after eighth grade to say, you know what, I'm going to go to public school, go to Shaker Heights High School. So what happens is that I think what James has to do is understand that his black experience is valid. His black experience is a black experience. There is no one black experience. And I think for him, I understand the urge to question his validity, you know, as far as having a public voice. But he needs to understand that, you know, no matter how, you know, sort of nasal or whatever he may sound like as far as his actual voice. He needs to own his own blackness in that regard first, because he's not going to be an effective conduit for whatever he's trying to advocate, whether it be, you know, something having to do specifically with race or not, unless he is, you know, understanding that he is his voice, his voice matters. And there are a lot more people that are in his uh, position than he may even think. Amen to that. So it's good to hear him calling in because there's so many people that I know personally who have had a very similar upbringing. And I struggled with this growing up. I mean, this is, just, you know, the, you know, being called Oreo when, you, you know, eventually when I got to high school, you know, you're in the AP classes, you talk, you're so well-spoken, you, you speak so well. Those kind of things, you know, eat at you and then you get teased and whatnot and you have to deal with that. I think what also helps is knowing who's really in your corner. 
building a group of black friends uh, or, or friends of color who can relate to that experience, you know, finding other people who, gosh, you know what, that's what I went through too. And here's how I dealt with it. The thing is, is that you are not alone. I was fortunate enough to have other people in my high school who were dealing with it. Mm-hmm. So we dealt with it like right there and then. But do you still keep in touch with them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Oh, yeah. My best friend from high school, she lives in Brooklyn. We're still in touch. And I mean, that network is strong. And same thing when you eventually when I eventually went to college, a lot of people I went to college with had gone through that in high school. So mm-hmm. we dealt with that, you know, in a different way when we got to a predominantly white university and there were different things to play in there. So we can go into that later. But I think that's pretty wow. much what I got to say about it. Serendipity. I'm so glad Jamil's here because yeah. I feel like that that voice memo was meant for you. <laughs> right. Exactly. So to his other question, what do integrated schools mean for HBCUs? Um, I don't know that we need to answer that question because we have fewer and fewer integrated schools yeah. these days. But that was part of the tension over integration itself is HBCUs felt very threatened. Mm-hmm. If we had moved further in the direction of an integrated society, HBCUs would probably be even on more life support than they are. In fact, there was a huge, and one of the things we didn't get to talk with Nicole Hannah-Jones, is that you know, much of what she's written in the New York Times, and in fact most of the literature on school segregation, focuses on white opposition, which of course is you know 90% of the story. But there is a strong, strong undercurrent of, in some cases, or pockets of black opposition to integration, and more generally ambivalence about integration for precisely the reasons that he suggests. It's a cultural Mm -hmm. loss. It's a loss of our power base, our power structure. And you had um, what was interesting about the the school in in St. Louis that Nicole profiled is that a thousand parents at this majority black school chose to send their kids on the bus to the white school. But what that meant was 3,000 students, their parents chose Mm -hmm. to leave them in an unaccredited bad school rather than put them on a bus. Right. And that's completely unexplored in much of the literature because, like, we don't really talk about black opposition to integration as sort of a knee-jerk response to to white opposition. But sometimes you think it's opposition or they're just afraid for their children to have to go through discrimination or have, you know, similar. Or even just, like, the the awkwardness of, like, building those relationships in in an an unfamiliar environment. Exactly. But the... When I wrote about the integration of the churches in southern Louisiana, or integration of a church in a small town in south Louisiana, the priest, who was sort of overseeing it at the time, wrote what I thought was one of the most cogent analyses of why integration fails, which is that in the long term, black opposition to integration will run deeper than white opposition. Because when white, white people's opposition to integration is based on fairy tales and make-believe and all these stereotypes that don't actually exist that evaporate upon contact with actual lived experiences of people of color. So over time, if white people just open the door enough to let people in, say, oh, well, that all these things we thought weren't true. And then uh, opposition will at least fade to the point of, well, okay, whatever. They can come in if they want to. They're not necessarily pro or con. But black opposition to integration is based on very real things, fear of physical violence, fear of humiliation, fear of a loss of this community left behind. And so over time, white opposition will get just sort of like generally dispersed and sort of go under the radar. And that's kind of what we see today. Most white people say, well, you know, diversity is okay, but you know, but they don't really, you know, say one thing or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, well, whereas in, in certain pockets, especially among HBCU advocates and, and those sorts of places, you find deep-seated opposition mm-hmm. among a core rump faction of black America. Right. So thanks, James, for that uh, voice note. Moving on. 
Moving on, this is a bit more of a parent's question. Alex writes us, My question concerns white flight and liberal guilt regarding race and education. My wife and I are looking for our first home, which means we are really shopping around for the best school district for our three-year-old son. We repeat the mantra that we are looking for the best schools possible in our price range, but after researching those schools, we continually end up with the whitest districts as the best ones. I grew up in a racially mixed school, actually the Ferguson Florissant School District, and I am utterly convinced that I was and am better off for it. How do I reconcile what seems like a mutually exclusive set of options, choosing a school district that's racially diverse or one whose educational options are best for my son? Thanks, Alex. Or should the white, white parent take this one? Yeah, the white parent. Go for it. <laughs> Go for it, Tanner. It's hard because <clears throat> we've basically engineered this society so that those schools don't exist. To find a pocket of quality housing and quality education and affordable housing and a diverse population is, I mean, it's like a unicorn. So you have to, to balance those things out. I mean, I know I want my kids to grow up. I don't want them to grow up in a bubble. There's two purposes of education, really. One is to broaden yourself and become a better human being and understand humanity. And from that point of view, you want your kid exposed to as much as possible and different people and different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. But it's also there's the socioeconomic piece of wanting your kid to move up, you know, go to the good schools and get a good job and get ahead. And from the socioeconomic point of view, no matter what rung of the socioeconomic ladder you're on, the rung above you is wider than the one where you're at which is why white people spend most of their time integrating with other white people, right? Yeah. So I want to get my kid one step up on that ladder, and most of those places are literally white. So how do you solve it? I don't know. Where I am right now, it's rapidly gentrifying, so who knows what the demographics are going to be 10 years from now. And you're talking about Brooklyn. Yeah, in Brooklyn and Carroll mm-hmm. Gardens. Right now, I think I've looked at it too closely because my kid's only two, but there's one school that's 30% minority, 70% white, and there's another school that's like 50-50 with the Gifted and Talented program. And I, I haven't looked at them closely enough to know which way to go. In New York, 30% minority, 70% white is bad. In most of the rest of the country, that would probably be okay. Those numbers, you know, if you were in a suburban school that was 30% minority, you'd be like, all right, that's, that's pretty good. If you can't find a diverse school with good education, send them to the best school you can and find some intramural activities in the community and in the city where that's they can meet other people yeah. uh, extracurricular. Mm-hmm. I would say look for a church, but churches are segregated. You know, I agree with you on that. Churches and or spiritual communities, playgrounds, museums, playgroups, activities, (laughs) Mm -hmm. parent listservs. And I was a single mom for a while with my daughter. The way I supplemented her education was by traveling. So my daughter and I do the same thing with my son has been traveling since before she was one because I don't believe that, you know, you you have to start when they're later so they can remember. I believe that's all in the subconscious. And I wanted her to know that not to be lonely and not Mm -hmm. to feel like she's the only girl who looks like her and is like her in her community, that we exist everywhere, her family's everywhere, and to always search for herself everywhere. So we've, you know, traveled to Europe and, you know, all over the world, South America, anywhere, because I believe that we have to, especially, you know, we're willing to take the extra step, right? And sometimes, like Nicole said, which shocked the shit out of me, New York City is the most segregated school, uh, has the most segregated schools in America. Mm -hmm. We have to have, like, even put another foot in it to try to make sure that our children 
are living, quote unquote, multicultural, diverse lives. I'm just going to let my kid hang out with Baritone a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it, just to quickly add, I mean, there's two other things. I think you mentioned church earlier, and that's actually how, you know, that got supplemented for me when I was going to a mostly white private school mm-hmm. early on. I say my parents said, you know what, we're going to send you the best school we can. And you can get a scholarship and that worked out. And so what we're going to do is supplement your education, not only by making sure that, you know, you go to this black church and you interact with black kids that go to that church, but also you are going to read up at home. And that's really what my parents stress is that you're going to listen to, you know, speeches and music and and read up on our history and make sure that you're schooled on that at mm-hmm. home it because it's gonna something i mean my seventh grade history book i'll never forget this had one page that mentioned the civil rights movement and it was a brief paragraph on the right column of the page and it mentions martin luther king in a brief way and there's no mention of malcolm x Medgar evers snick anything mm-hmm. nothing selma nothing and right. so my parents had to supplement that education so i think what you know as a parent mm-hmm. If that is one of their concerns, it's like, okay, my child's not going to get an exposure to this diversity. They're not going to get exposure to people or, or history that, you know, and a diverse education. Make sure that they get it at home. Make sure that you, you are giving them assignments. And I, my parents gave me assignments in this regard. Not stringent stuff, but just assignments. And if you're looking for a community that has that, that, that unicorn, as you said, mm-hmm. go to Shaker Heights, Ohio. <laughs> Right. <laughs> My school high school was 50-50, and it's a beautiful neighborhood, and the schools are amazing. To me, the whole idea of an integrated school is something that doesn't exist because schools don't integrate. People do. Right. right? So that is what you have to choose to do. You integrate your son into or your children into different environments, and you send them there. Integrate is an action verb. So... It's something you do yourself, not something you put your child into. And mm-hmm. for for us too, the last thing I'll say is, you know, my daughter's experience, even my experience, was very binary. It was very black and white, and we don't exist in that in that space. Actually, we spent some time unlearning what she's, you know, what she was learning in school. I remember, like for example, she was part of a Thanksgiving play. And they were talking about how the pilgrims and, you know, they call them the Indians were getting along. And I was like, that's bullshit. I couldn't, you know, help myself. And I almost got thrown out of the play. And she was like a little embarrassed. But at the same time, at the end, she was like, well, my mom was telling the truth. So, you know, and so did some of the teachers in the school. But, you know, it was a, a parochial school. She did first grade in parochial school. So, you know, we had to at least go with the stay on message. But I believe that a lot of times staying on message when you're dealing with religion and even our school system today is kind of dangerous for um, uh, people, young uh, uh, students of color. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I'd have paid good money teach to see him, that. Teach him at home. <laughs> teach him at home. Right. You know, I slept on a, I slept on a couch last night, Tanner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My back's kind of feeling it today. That's why I'm kind of like leaning this way. Oh, I'm, that's tragic. You should get a Casper mattress. A Casper mattress. Why? Because Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price. It's only $500 for a twin mattress and only $950, less than $1,000 for a king-size mattress. Compared to what other guys charge for their mattresses, that's pretty damn good. Can I say pretty damn good? You can say pretty damn good. A Casper mattress has just the right sink and just the right bounce. That's not your kitchen sink, by the way. That's just the amount of sinking you do into the mattress. Two technologies allow this, latex foam and memory foam. A Casper mattress provides better nights and brighter days. Another great thing about Casper is that they have a risk-free trial and return policy. Get this. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. 
Try it for 100 days. Don't like it. Send it back for free. And you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase and show your support for our show by visiting casper.com slash race and using the promo code race. That's casper.com slash race. The promo code is race. All right. Next question. All right. So this next one actually gets back to uh, Raquel's being blown away about New York being so segregated. Chris, Mm. I apologize in advance. I had to edit your voicemail down for time. So thank you. Hey, conversation about race. This is Chris Van Dyke, a um, white male from Brooklyn, New York, and I love your show. As a high school teacher in New York City for the past 13 years in the public high school system, I have had a lot of personal experience with how segregated our quote-unquote liberal cities are. Every time I read an article about the segregation in the North or hear a conversation like yours, uh, my first response is how none of it, no conversation I've ever come across, captures how truly segregated our school system is. When I hear numbers like 20%, 15%, 10%, even 5%, they are so far off how badly segregated our schools are. I usually have about 100 students a year. And so if you average that out, I've had at least 1,300 students um, over the last 13 years. And of those, I would say, generously speaking and rounding up, I have had no more than 10 students who would be considered white. And I would say almost all of those who were visibly white were either light-skinned Puerto Rican or first-generation European um, immigrant. My students are segregated by race, um, and they are also segregated by class. They live and go to school in some of the poorest districts in the entire United States. And with just a, a short subway walk from, or short subway ride from some of the richest school districts in the entire United States. And they're not given access to the, what our city has to offer. And if you don't know how um, 100% segregation could get worse, there's the resegregation going on in the, some, the few schools that had um, managed to make themselves integrated. And there was an article recently on a website called Chalkbeat by a man named Patrick Wolf talking about how these schools are being resegregated. That as the neighborhoods change, as gentrification comes into the neighborhoods, poor minority families are being pushed out and these very integrated schools are becoming resegregated as their neighborhoods become less and less diverse and more and more filled with um, middle and upper middle class white individuals. And these schools, their principals are dedicated to staying integrated. Um, They have plans they've proposed to the city and they just, at every turn, the city either says they can't do it because you can't have racial quotas to maintain integration, um, or they just ignore them and allow the, the onward role of gentrification to just destroy the small amount of segregation some school, um, integration some schools had put together. Um, keep us talking about what we need to talk about. Thanks. Chris, thank you so much for that comment, for actually adding to our conversation since none of us have ever been... Have you ever been a teacher? No. Neither have no. I. That's really an interesting perspective. And, I mean, you know, I, I guess for me, it's just I, just... I said I was shocked because we live in New York and it's supposed to be very diverse, but this is, you know, New York, I guess, every year is becoming less and less diverse. I got knocked on the show earlier for saying that there are only five black people living in Minneapolis. But in a, in a place where, you know, if you are one of, you know a couple of thousand people of color in, in a totally white place, there's really no option but to integrate right. and assimilate into that culture because you just, you just don't have enough of a base to be separate uh, yourself. We talk about integration as about black and white people mixing. And that's actually not the, the, the whole truth, which is that 
it's not about integrating black and white people with each other. It's about integrating marginalized people into the power structure. Right. By that definition, if we take that for the sake of argument, I am integrated. I'm a white man in America. I can go anywhere. I can do anything. I have access to all the doors. I'm already in. And that you know is, is part of the problem is that where white people go, they keep that power structure in place, and you have to be able to get into that. So a 90% black school or a 99% black school, you can't get white people to go there to balance the numbers out because that's outside the power structure. So you can't get white people to go there. So how do you then group enough white people together so that you have a power structure and then move people of color into that in a way that the white people then don't run away? It's right. a puzzle. The puzzle of integration is not how you get people of color in. The puzzle of integration is how you get white people to stay. Well, I know Nicole is working on a piece, and I can't wait, about educational segregation in the mm. North, and it may be even in New York City. She mentioned it last time. Right. And I really can't wait to see what she comes up with. Oof. All right. So this is more of a question. This is from Lindsay. Raquel, I think you can like this one a lot, actually. Ooh. Hey there, lady dudes and dudes. I've been listening about how the Black Lives Matter movement should be disruptive and how getting along doesn't always work. And I agree with you. But let me tell you a little bit about where I'm coming from. I'm a high school teacher. My subject areas cover government and economics. And most importantly, I teach kids. And I'm a white female, like most teachers. I teach about slavery, and I call it as it is, and as it was, the brutal ownership of humans. I teach about black women who are not considered full members of the women's suffrage movement. I teach about how black Americans don't make as much money as white Americans. I teach about how women don't make as much as men and how black women make even less. But at the end of the day, I'm still a middle-class white woman. On one side of my family, I had family come from England in the days of colonization. All of my people wanted to be the whitest white people you ever met. They literally fled Detroit to the suburbs in the 50s to get away from black people. On the other side, I'm a granddaughter of a Chippewa Indian who changed her name to assimilate and aggressively separated herself from her tribe. She married a Polish man who also changed his name or possibly had it changed for him at Ellis Island, and he never spoke of it. I benefit from white privilege. I benefit from the forceful assimilation of my grandparents into white society. Success through assimilation is all I know. And as a teacher, I've learned about the struggle of black and poor people, but I don't know it. I'll always be, in the words of one of my black students, that white bitch that don't know shit about me. When I said her daughter had amazing potential but needed a quiet place to study. I'll always be the lady that called my daughter a dumb racist when she wanted to leave the discussion about slavery. That was the words of a white father. I didn't call his daughter a racist. I did tell her that sometimes learning would make a person uncomfortable, and in our discomfort will grow in knowledge. I teach my students what I call polite assertiveness, the importance of knowing your rights and claiming those rights, but doing so in a way that you can also claim that you are behaving yourself and standing up for yourself. But to listen to some of the feedback on your show and through the world at large these days, I'm just teaching them how to stay oppressed. And so I'm in a catch-22. If I teach them open rebellion, I can lose my job. I teach in a non-union state. And if I teach them how to work in the system, I'm oppressing them. I just don't know what to do anymore. I say, I say stand up for what you believe in. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And if you're really passionate about children, I mean, I really appreciate uh, Lindsay's voicemail. I felt the energy and the passion and the fact that she really cares about the kids that she teaches, uh, which to me was very unfamiliar because I've had so many indifferent and really whack teachers growing up here in New York City. But if you really do feel that strongly about it, you know, um, I think you can 
you can be that example of that change you want to see in the world. And I also think that there's a way to teach a revolutionary mindset without being, you know, confined within the, you know, the respectability politics. Um, I mean, I think there's a way to say, look, you can think in a revolutionary way. You can think in ways that are going to help change this world and and understand what needs to be changed and, and, and develop and how to develop strategies to change it without saying that, okay, but while you're changing it, make sure that you're your, your collar's ironed and pressed and make sure that you speak well, make sure you're clean shaven, mm-hmm. make sure like none of that stuff matters. And helping them to understand that that stuff matters, that the stuff doesn't, doesn't matter, I should say, is, I think, key. And I think you can do that in a calm and, and, and exactly. even-handed way that's yeah. not going to get you fired. I mean, I polite think... Polite assertiveness. Polite assertiveness. And I think that what, you know, I, I think she's got a, she's obviously got a challenge weeding through vitriol coming from both black and white parents and possibly even from her colleagues. So Mm -hmm. I don't envy her challenge, but I think it is achievable. Sometimes I feel like parents are like, can be your worst enemy because it's like they just want to, I mean, maybe it's not something they do consciously, but we just put so much baggage Mm -hmm. on our children. And I feel like one way that we can challenge ourselves as parents to, um, and supplement, you know, and simple while supplementing their education is also resisting the urge to put our baggage, weigh our kids down with that. Remember when we were talking about that a yeah. few episodes ago? Like, let the kids decide, let right. them, let them live, let them be. Yeah. I've actually had a lot of encouragement, uh, from teachers both in Birmingham and in Kansas City, which is the two cities profiled in, in my book of teachers using the book in class, putting it in the curriculum, using it for discussion groups. And I went actually to Kansas City uh, a year ago, and four high school groups were supposed to meet for this seminar thing. And one of the high schools backed out the morning of because a parent complained that they didn't want their students going to some rabble-rousing race thing. But the teachers were all really committed to doing the right thing. And I don't think, you know, one of the points, I think I think it was in Harold Cruz thing I read, which is that you got two options. You can either overthrow the system or you work inside the system. You know, you can either French Revolution the shit and, like, you know, overthrow it and guillotine everybody and start (laughs) over, or you can pick your battles and work inside it. So you're not teaching them to further their own impression by teaching them to pick their battles and work inside the system. Because last I checked, we're not going to have a revolutionary overthrow in America soon. Maybe eventually. Maybe the race war's coming. I don't know. But it's not going to happen. If Trump wins, it will come. If Trump wins, it will come. But... Point being is that, like, you're not teaching them white supremacy and, and the legacy of all this and the legacy of oppression exists and informs everything we do. To me, it's like the, the grid in Manhattan, right? That's the roads and the streets that were built that we have to work on now. And we can say, okay, it's oppressive and bad, but you still got to walk down those streets to get to work. So you have to work within that framework in order to dismantle that framework. Now, how you dismantle that framework while you're inside of it and still using it to get places, who knows? But you're not teaching them to further their own impression by teaching them to, to work within the system. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and sometimes, I mean, it was really refreshing to hear her, um, Lindsay's voicemail, because I meet teachers, especially doing, you know, when they let me out of the cage um, during Latino History Months and sometimes Women's History Months. Um, and I meet these teachers, you know, where we have a large Latino enclaves, like, for example, Massachusetts, even in New York City. And they're like, oh, my God, we have somebody because I wrote the first um, non-academic memoir by a Dominican-American author. And they say, oh, my God, it lo- it's so good to see somebody that's not a dead white man. Kids are able to really find 
themselves in your work. We really want to teach your book. We really want to adopt your book. But then when they when they read it themselves and say, you know, I love where I come from. I love being American. I love I love both sides of my identity. But because I love being American and I love being from New York City, I also feel like I can critique where I come from. And I can, you know, and I speak for not everybody, but there is a big, large segment of us who were miseducated and who, you know, had very poor apathetic teachers Mm -hmm. and I speak you know uh, truth to power in that sense people don't want to deal with that they want you to tell the story of you know you coming here as a poor you know quote unquote illegal and meeting some white uh, teacher like Mackay Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds who kind of sets you free and then you know your whole life is dedicated to her all your successes that's not the story that's not the universal story and I think part of the last lady closing I feel like you know, she's committed to she's only existing within certain racial narratives that have been set up right. for her. Um, very limited things that largely are controlled by white folks. Right. Uh, and so once she understands that, you know, the paradigm for overcoming the very challenges that she's trying to help these students understand is not going to be authored by the oppressors. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. But, so she's got to understand, that, like, you know, look, she can help these students in a way that's not going to get her fired. And it's also going to be constructive and help them work within the system, like my parents taught me, mm-hmm. to to make change. And I just think that, look, there's room for revolutionaries. If, if a revolutionary is in your classroom, then, then that person will emerge. But, right. you know, just make sure that they have all the tools that they need and try not to, you know, mind the bollocks, as it were. This one comes from Cindy. She's a social psychologist and she's uh, attempting to split the baby a little bit when it comes to coddling. One thing that um, was brought up in this last episode with Nicole Hannah-Jones was this question about changing hearts and minds versus changing policy. And I wanted to say that as a psychologist, I can tell you that really the policy is what then changes the mind and the heart and the attitude. And we don't often think of it that way. We think we have to convince people and then the policy shifts. And that's partially true, but it's also very true that the attitude then shifts the mind and the heart. And so I think that uh, Nicole's point about the importance of changing policy is very true with the idea of changing the hearts and the minds. It doesn't always go quickly. I'll look at Kim Davis, for example, but but it does work. And it, I think that that's one of the only ways it works. And that, to me, speaks to the strong need for enforcement, the enforcement role. And I think if you look at the civil rights laws that have worked versus the ones that haven't, they're usually the ones that are enforced versus not. So that's one argument I would make. One other thing I can't help but mention is sometimes you all get into this back and forth about how to deal with white people. Do you coddle them or do you do you be tough with them? And I would argue as someone who's been teaching for over 15 years on this topic to mostly white students and as a white person myself, I don't think that it's either or. And I don't like the word coddling exactly. I don't think you have to give in to white fragility or cave into it. I do not believe that or I wouldn't be teaching. But I do think that you have to meet people where they're at and try to work with them while also not sugarcoating the truth, not making it seem equivocal. I'm unambiguous about the facts of racism always, but I also try to be compassionate to where people are from and where they're coming from because a lot of young people, especially in this country, don't know much about race. And that's our fault because we haven't taught them. And so I think it's not either or. It's kind of both and. And I have a lot more thoughts on, on how to do that, having taught it for a long time. But that's just one other thing I would I would throw in. Thanks a lot. I think you have an interesting show and I appreciate it. I, I mean, I agree with her. I don't you know, we were talking, but we were agreeing about that. Right. 
Well, it's I th- not really I, about being one going from one extreme to another. It's just about right. being it's, firm. It's, it's neither coddling nor yeah. confronting. It's, right. But you you start with people where they are, and you have empathy for where they are, like the people that I grew up with in my high school who believe that the Confederate flag stands for school spirit. All right, that's where you are, and I'm going to accept that you're there, Right. and I'm going to try and bring you my way, and we're going to have a policy that says no Confederate flags, and you're going to have to grapple with that and understand why there's no Confederate flags, and that's going to change your heart and mind. Well, there's a symbiosis, right? You have to have change hearts and minds enough to get a new policy, and then the policy hopefully changes more hearts and minds. The problem is when you have policies that are done poorly so that it it has the opposite effect of of backfiring on the hearts and minds mm-hmm. and that unfortunately is has been a lot of the problem with busing busing noble in intention was often uh, ill executed and did the reverse to hearts and minds if your policy can't be incomplete because we put in the bu- place the busing and school integration policies but we didn't do anything about the housing policy right so we knew that school busing was going to like scare white people and spook the cattle, but we didn't build a fence to stop everyone from running away from the suburbs. So we spooked the cattle without building a fence and everyone just ran away. People have to stay in, in one place long enough for their hearts and minds to get changed. <laughs> so, um, AC, were there any voice notes or emails about New Orleans? No, we didn't. We didn't get any feedback about, about that, New Orleans. That is really that's really crazy. That's really that weird. Really, yeah, I find that really and nuts. I really hope if if people are hearing this right now and they're from or in New Orleans, like right, give us, us a we shout want to talk out about this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Even next B side, we'll mention it if you if you send it to us. I mean, I, I realized like this year, it, the tenth year anniversary to me, who doesn't really watch too much television, kind of came and went without much fanfare. So what do you guys think? I I think this is a media problem we have right now, which is with regards to anniversaries. And we we build them up so, so much. We we center pieces around them. We, you know, make sure that like, okay, you know, there's going to be think piece number one, number two, number three that are going to be coming out and they have to be tagged to this date. I think what we've done is set ourselves up for like we we give them an anniversary and then we just move on. Mm-hmm. And when we don't understand how, and I think that's a real disservice to the complexity of a story like Katrina, because by no means, obviously, did the story end on August 29th. That was the very, very beginning of the suffering that people endured right. and are enduring still. I was in New Orleans reporting a profile on a musician ter- named Terrence Blanchard. and um, I love Terrence Blanchard. Yes. And, uh, you know, just being down there... Um, you know, his house, he, he grew up in Pontchartrain Park. His house his, that he grew up in, his mother uh, had been living in when Katrina hit, and it was flooded to the rafters. It was, you know, ranch-style house. And she just moved back in almost 10 years later. Mm. It took almost 10 years. And this is, a, you know, this is a popular musician. He scored most of Spike Lee's work. This is not a guy without means to help his mother rebuild. So... This is an ongoing story. And for us to treat anniversaries as like, okay, we're going to do a commemoration and we're going to have like some special cable news coverage of it. And then it's just over. I just, I don't believe in that organizing philosophy, specifically as a journalist. Well, also as a human being, you don't just like move on. You don't just, you know. Mm -hmm. Yes, and journalists I mean, and not and human being are not mutually exclusive, of course. Yeah, <laughs> it's an intersection. Yes, you're a journalist and, and a human being, and a human. Not all journalists are human beings. Imagine that, right? I contain multitudes. <laughs> Please show about race, listeners. 
send us a voice memo or two or three about your memories of Katrina or your thoughts about Katrina or your thoughts on the way we commemorate anniversaries. And if journalists indeed are human beings, if they're indeed, if there are intersections between the two, tell us what you think at showaboutrace at gmail.com where you can send us those fabulous voice memos or if you're old school, just shoot us an email. We're also at showaboutrace on Facebook and Twitter. 